Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. Today, sports washing, where questionable regimes with dodgy records on human rights and the environment lend their largesse to major sporting events in the hope that it'll take our minds off what they're up to. In January, human rights activists called for a boycott of the Paris to Dakar car rally over Saudi Arabia's imprisonment of Lujain Al-Hathlul, who, ironically, had been campaigning for women's rights to drive. Al-Hathlul was released this month in a separate move, which was seen as an overture to Joe Biden. Meanwhile, MPs are urging British Olympic athletes to boycott the 22 Beijing Winter Games over China's genocidal abuse of the Uyghurs and the involvement of Qatar, a country with a catastrophic human rights record in world football, from its purchase of Paris Saint-Germain to its partnerships with Bayern Munich, Roma and Real Madrid to its shady acquisition of the 2022 World Cup, have all been seen as among the most egregious examples of sports washing. How bad is this problem and what can we do about it when world sport is so dominated by money and geopolitics? Here to explain it all to me is Murad Ahmed, sports editor of the Financial Times and co-chair of the FT Business of Football Summit. Hello, Murad. Thanks for joining us. Are you decompressing after the least exciting transfer window ever? I quite enjoyed this transfer window because it was a slightly different story, I have to say. I, I could write about Brexit and COVID and all the effects on the on the transfer window. So I quite, I, I quite liked the lack of activity. I came into my own. Yeah, it was like the chill-out room of football, wasn't it? It was like the sort of, you know, come in and relax and uh, keep your blood pressure down. So on the sports washing, how, how serious is this issue? I mean, you wrote a, a piece about a year ago with the headline, The Gulf Could Owns Global Sports Soon. Is it that big? It is that big at the in the upper upper echelons of of sports. I mean, what we've seen over several years is that what was once sports ownership uh, holding events might have the largesse of a wealthy individual. Sometimes that wealthy individual also wants to, uh, you know, manage their reputation as well and be associated with sport for that reason. We're seeing those basic tactics play out on uh, a corporate level but also as you were saying you know on a geopolitical level particularly with middle eastern countries having a kind of proxy war to their uh, regional rivalries on the playing field so is sports washing distorting the business of sports as, as well as just eroding whatever kind of moral standards we like to tell ourselves that, that the, the various sports have because the days as you mentioned the, the days of a local used car salesman buying your team to glory are kind of long gone aren't they absolutely so I mean, the, the, the sport I, I write about most is, is football. It's the world's most popular sport and gathers tons of attention and, uh, and will continue to do so. But you can see very clearly the ways that the sports market, the football market has been completely distorted by ownership of, of say, Middle Eastern states. So, you know, let's take Paris Saint-Germain. A few years ago, they bought the Brazilian forward Neymar for 222 million euros. This was up more than 100 million euros, more than any transfer feed ever played for a player. And I've spoken to lots of European football executives since, and they said in the years after that, it completely distorted the market, completely distorted 
what the top price of a player was led to a lot of price inflation as the other big clubs in in Europe look to compete. The one thing that's managed to dampen that down is the reality of of the pandemic. And uh, we've we've seen everything come back to some sort of normality on on the price front. But it it gives you an idea, a very real world uh, example of how distorting it can be when you throw petrodollars at, at football. You know, we've often been told to uh, you know to look out for the emergence of the you know the European Super League and the, you know the, the the kind of a, a global elite competition, which puts domestic leagues kind of out of the picture. Do you think that this kind of investment and the introduction of, uh, as you say, petrodollars for the enhancement of reputations of problematic countries is likely to bring us towards that that feared end state? I'm not sure whether or not it's going to bring us closer to that. I think what it means is that you can't envisage a breakaway Super League in, say, European football without those entities being involved. If 20 years ago you were having a breakaway Super League, it would not involve Manchester City, which is now owned by Sheikh Mansour of the UAE, nor would it involve Paris Saint-Germain, which has since been taken over by the Qatari state. But their wealth have made them relevant factors in European football, and now you can really envisage a European Super League without them. A lot of people would say that anybody involved in sports sponsorship of any kind is trying to change perceptions. And they might ask, well, why is, why is a Russian gas company or a, a Gulf kingdom any worse than, say, a trainer manufacturer who you know may require constant monitoring to make sure that it's not making its trainers in sweatshops or a fast food company for that matter? They, they might say, is there a particular real moral difference here? Uh, thankfully, I don't have to make moral judgments in my, in my, in my reporting. I, I just uh, I have to say it as I see mm. it uh, in that sense. And look, as I, as I report for the Financial Times, we've, uh, we've traditionally not seen money as an immoral factor in, in the way the world works. I think the, the vast difference that we're seeing is that there's been a, those associations with sponsors and corporate groups have tended to be less to do with a reputational incentive and more to do with the profit incentive. Um, It's very hard to see, although, and I've spent time with Manchester City executives, for example, and Paris Saint-Germain executives, they say that longer term, their ownership of of these football clubs is to uh, find new revenue streams that will diversify their nations away from natural uh, resources. And this is a kind of a longer term game. You invest now, you reap the benefits later. There's no doubt that what a lot of the people involved in these clubs would do is when, you know, you type in Abu Dhabi into Google, they would much prefer a load of links popping up on Manchester City's exploits than their human rights records. Yeah. We've mentioned a few examples of, of sports watching, but for, for, what for you are the most damaging to sports? Which which are the instances where, you know, rather than, you know, holding one's nose as, as hundreds of millions come into your football club, it's actually damaging your club or the game? Damaging is a, is a difficult word, but I'll, uh, the, I think the incident that really brought it home to me in, in, in recent years is the attempted takeover of Newcastle United by a consortium led by the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which essentially is run by Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia and the crown prince um, of that country. The way that the, the consortium addressed 
Newcastle fans and the public was that, you know, this was their way of investing in a region that had been underinvested for years, if not decades. It's their takeover of the club. They really love the region. And that really didn't seem to stack up to the truth. What actually seemed to be is an extension of a regional rivalry with um, Qatar principally, um, but also their ally in the Gulf, the UAE. And they were, it was a kind of copycat maneuver at that level. But the problem with with all of that is one of the other things that was going on was Saudi Arabia were uh, and, and the World Trade Organization have have said this, but they were helping to infringe uh, inter- intellectual property rights by essentially hosting or in in other ways being associated with a pirate television network called Be Out Q. Um, Be Out Q essentially took the stream of a Qatari broadcaster called Be In, which had paid billions for the rights for things like the Premier League um, and the World Cup and other sporting events, and was really undermining the way that the sports business had worked by uh, by kind of their association with this pirate network and so you in this intricate way you're starting to see all the ways that once uh, groups are starting to see sport as a proxy battle that eventually the sports industry itself the clubs the leagues um get caught in the crossfire and that's what happened with the newcastle takeover basically didn't happen partly because the premier league were concerned that the saudi state was involved and hadn't done enough to address their uh, concerns about piracy so essentially saudi arabia had been behaved on a grand scale like the dodgy pub at the end of your road with the hooky stream from the unusual provider with access to satellite technology that could uh, to really make sure that your stream never went down amazing um does does sport washing does it work is the data to support the you know the obvious goal that uh, you know it's about reputation enhancement, but also as as you say, it's about proxy conflict and gaining advantage and gaining kind of entree into economies that you otherwise wouldn't have. It's a really difficult one to know how much it works, but I, I've spoken to human rights activists. They tend to say that actually it's a it's a very successful strategy. So uh, the person I speak to about this is a, is a guy called Nicholas McGeehan, and he's a founder of a group called Fair Square. And he's often targeted by Manchester City fans, for example, on social media, this kind of weaponizing of fans to go after your critics, the country's critics, is, seems quite alarming to me. But he said, you know, he, he said to me, for every outraged liberal Westerner who disapproves of if you want to call them sports washing, but these, but their involvement in sport, there's you know thousands of kids all around the world running around with shirts with Etihad Airways over the front of them or Qatar over the front of them. So in that way, the global branding that football and sport has provided is is already working. And if it wasn't working, why would Saudi Arabia be making a concerted effort to to build up their sports industry at the moment? I mean, I suppose also there's a, the factor that every football fan will recognise, which is you're very quick to criticise when it's happening to other people or other people getting involved in this. But when your own team is offered uh, a potential investment of billions, suddenly the, the, the scales fall from your eyes or maybe the scales go back on your eyes. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm a, I'm a Liverpool fan, so I, I feel fortunate that Fenway sport are not as problematic as, as certain owners. But 
you know, does it, does it ultimately fall back on the fact that fans will fans will swallow anything as long as the money is coming in and success is on the way? Yeah, I mean, fans are incentivized by the glory of uh, of their teams above else. I mean, they don't see themselves as customers. You know, no fan thinks of themselves as a consumer of 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 a global brand but i can tell you that the marketing directors of uh, of these clubs certainly do you know fans make an emotional decision usually around the ages of eight and and 12 years old they get hooked on an association with a club they consider it part of their identity and they stick with it for decades Um, and actually what has become the case as sport has become a business is that they've made a financial and economic decision which will stick with them for the rest of their lives and so this is the thing that makes you know so-called sports washing such a a potent tool if you can tap into it but other sports i mean i'm aware that we've talked a lot about football that that, that i Mm -hmm. i mean never really going to do that as a football fan but other sports have less of a partisan yeah particularly based on individual sports such as motorsports and they too are also being brought into the sports washing world aren't we we're seeing more and more Boxing in the Gulf states. Motorsport has had a, a lengthy association with Gulf states for the petrochemical connection, which is now more problematic maybe than when, there's, when the sports really became connected to that world. Do you see outside of football, is sports washing as influential and powerful in those other sports? Well, it depends what you're, what you're trying to do by uh, sports washing. Like, sports washing is a, a derogatory term that a lot of human rights activists don't like using as well because they see it as as i see as all the activity that's going on uh as more subtle than that so you brought up things like motor racing going into the gulf states you know bahrain has a grand prix saudi arabia will soon have a grand uh, grand prix abu dhabi has a, a grand prix in formula one the paris dakar rally has been brought up by uh, uh saudi arabia as well and what What officials in those countries will say and have said is that what they are trying to do is they're trying to modernize their countries. They're trying to bring leisure activities and entertainment into their uh, nations as a way of giving something to their incredibly young populations, give them these kind of leisure um, activities, also encourage them to take up um, sport themselves. Obesity is a big problem in the in in the Gulf countries as well, and bring in new revenue streams, new tourists into the country, other ways of of making money and and have an economy in the future that works beyond just uh, natural resources. So, if you take them at their word, then uh, then having the Paris Dakar Rally being a massive advert for Saudi Arabia on screens around the world starts to make a lot more sense in a more direct way than kind of ephemeral ideas of of, of branding and reputation management. But it, I mean, it can work the other way, can't it? I mean, few few people were as aware of Qatar's terrible human rights record as they are since it got the World Cup. It's now spending two hundred million pounds on infrastructure for the twenty twenty two World Cup. There's now widespread understanding that people are dying while these stadiums are being built. Can there be a kind of a, a, a Streisand effect where actually your attempt to cleanse your reputation in public by this can actually draw attention to your failings? Yeah, it's a really interesting point that I, I think a lot of the people who are involved in, in say, bidding for the World Cup and, and so on, they didn't really fully thought through the kind of the backlash that would come. And the the scrutiny that would come from 
from getting these events, particularly the ways that these events were acquired and these um, uh, along the way, the kind of backroom dealing that occurred has really brought scrutiny to these countries and they've had to make adjustments on and, and policy changes on workers' rights, which I, I think those people who advocate the Gulf states getting involved in sports say, look, a lot of this change wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for these investments in the first place. Um, so you've always got to kind of balance that out. I think you're also starting to see signs that Qatar in particular will ramp back its investment after the World Cup in football and in, in sport in general. Be in um, the Doha-based broadcaster, which uh, says it doesn't have a connection to the Qatari state, but is owned by the, uh, Nasser al-Khalifi, who uh, also runs Paris Saint-Germain, it has said that issues like piracy, issues like the value of sports rights means that they're going to start ramping back on their spending on sports rights. That is suddenly a big player retreating from the sports market in a way that will not be good for you know, sports franchises um, uh, in Europe and, and, and across the world. So uh, I, I think they, if they really thought that there was a good business model for it you would imagine that they would stick with it actually i think maybe they think their job is done and um and i think you may see a, a ramp back at least uh from the qatari side just just in closing then what can the average sports fan with their you know their multiple tv subscriptions and wanting to go to to games when they can what can we do about this incursion of you know, problematic regimes and politically dodgy organisations into into world sport. I mean, does it does it simply boil down to if you don't agree with it, don't go? Which is a tough decision for the committed sports fan. But it's the only one that they have open to them. I can't speak to what activism that fans should take up if they are worried about this. What I can say is, arm yourself with knowledge. Arm yourself with a full understanding of the motivations, which, by the way, are much more varied and, and not necessarily sinister in, uh, in, in all circumstances. But once you understand the world as a kind of nuanced place full of competing interests and factors, as well as ideologies, then you're starting to get a much better picture of what's going on. Unfortunately, sport which is inherently oppositional. I support my team. Um, Go on, name your team. Associated. You know you want to. Oh, my, my team is Manchester United. Um, <laughs> at, at least that is the that is the team when um, that my family from um, from Manchester and well, as I was growing up, that was the team I was obsessed with. But equally, I'm more and more aware of how um, the club is run and it's rubbed as a business and my feelings of partisanship have, have reduced o- over time. I kind of, I have a, a WhatsApp group of my cousins who go absolutely crazy during every single Manchester United match and also consider me the, the, the worst enemy. Uh, they, I'm, I'm named a Liverpool fan for saying nice things about Jurgen Klopp. <laughs> I think that uh, inherently sport is all about partisanship. I'm sure, but take a step back for a bit understand what what you're supporting and what you're what you're doing and at least don't fall into the trap of being used as a tool 
of said regimes if you if you want to believe that um that's what they're doing and going around and doing things like attacking activists and yeah. journalists on twitter who who you don't uh who don't agree with uh, what what's going on within the clubs one last thing which of the world governing bodies are doing a good job on policing the involvement of problematic organizations and regimes that would perhaps damage the sport itself who's doing a good job and who's doing a bad job do you think i have no list of anyone who's doing a good job really uh, it's not look fundamentally this comes back to uh, an idea of if you see the world as a as a place of competing ideologies this is a horrendous thing that needs to be fought against and uh, why aren't governing bodies dealing with it but as a reporter at the ft we tend to see the world as a as a as a place of competing interests and uh, there are financial interests and there are um, political interests and sometimes they're just the interests of three men incredibly powerful who are the leaders of their effective leaders of their country in a kind of battle of wills and contests and, and bragging rights. And once you start seeing the world like that, you start understanding what's what's going on. And the governing bodies have their interest is essentially making money and then and they have not shown until the Premier League actually decided not to uh, or at least scrutinise the Newcastle United um, takeover very, very closely. Until then, it hadn't been clear to me that there was any evidence that any governing body in any sport wasn't going to take the dollar when it was offered to them. What would you do if Qatar rang up to buy Manchester United? Would you be able to maintain your journalistic song fraud, do you think? I think I'd be writing a lot of articles about it. <laughs> Murad Ahmed, thanks for joining us. Uh, before you go, tell us a bit about the FT Business of Football Summit, which sounds intriguing. Sure. On February 17th and 18th, we have a virtual football summit. We've run it for a, the last couple of uh, years live in person, but we have some great speakers like Manchester United's uh, Marcus Rashford and it's, um, talking about his child poverty campaign, the Premier League's chief executive, Richard Masters, Marcelo Kluwer, who's uh, the chief executive of SoftBank, a huge company that's associated with various sports investments, various other people in in and around the world of sport it's a two-day program of us asking hopefully difficult and interesting questions to the powers that be in football so do sign up and register if you uh, think that that's your sort of thing sounds good Murad. thank you very much for joining us it's been absolutely fascinating listeners remember you can help the bunker by reviewing and rating us on apple podcasts and also by backing us on patreon for a mere £2 a month, you can get all of our podcasts early without adverts in an exciting podcast wash. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>